Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we are going to take another step towards escaping the cave by actually re-watching or re-listening to an old episode that I am transferring over from my other show, That's BS. So as I said before, um, this show is basically the new start to anything that I'm doing related to philosophy, and that show is continuing to be um, a political show, a show about society, culture, um, a more laid-back discussion show. So this is a an episode that I had previously done um, on That's BS, but I think it's relevant to this show and its topics, and so I'm going to carry it over. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I will have introduced you um, and given your short-form bio in the Okay. Um, introduction to this. All right, cool. What but, bio did you give? Uh, I'm just basically going to say, if it's okay with you, that you are a professor of philosophy at Portland State. You are a co-author of the Grievance Studies hoax and the author of a manual for creating atheists. And you are the co-author of a new book, How to Have Impossible Conversations: A Very Practical Guide. Sounds good to me. Cool. Um, so I guess we can start. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. So yeah, first of all, Peter, thank you for uh, You're for very, doing this. Very welcome. We're at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. We here. are. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. This is yeah. the first time I've been here. Oh really? Um, yeah. So you have uh, co-authored a new book that is yep. scheduled for release on September seventeenth. Right. That's right. Um, and the title of it is How to Have Impossible Conversations: A Very Practical Guide. Um, and you co-authored this with James Lindsay. That's right. That's right. He's a math PhD in mathematics mm-hmm. and. We've written a ton of stuff together. Yeah, you have. And um, I actually talked to uh, the co-author of the Grievance Studies hoax papers, Helen Pluckrose. Oh, Um, Helen's great. Yeah, Yeah. she was really wonderful. She has a totally different skill set. Yeah, it seemed like the three of you made a um, a power team, almost. Yeah, Yeah. it's remarkable how we just filled each other's gaps Mm -hmm. in... And Jim and I have been working together for so long, and Helen and Jim have have been working together for a long time, Mm but I would make something for for the grievance system so utterly outrageous that there was no way it would have got in and mm-hmm. Helen would have made something indistinguishable from what was already there okay. and Jim had to fix those and make them walk the mm-hmm. line split that baby yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so um, what was and is I guess your goal and hopes in writing this book the how to have impossible conversations mm-hmm. yeah. we're not talking to each other everybody looks at the other side as an existential polarization especially since the grievance studies ha- grievance studies have more or less destroyed people's ability to have conversations i've seen it on college campuses i've seen voices silenced people don't know how to have know how to communicate with people across the divide mm. and so that was the primary motivation i think don the election of donald trump is really the the impetus for the whole thing mm-hmm yeah, it seemed like everything was falling apart pre-2016 exactly. and then really just kind of disintegrated. The hammer came at down. At that point, right. yeah. And it's I feel like it is easy to blame it on Trump, but I feel like, and I'm sure you go over this in the book, there are a lot of other issues like anonymity on Twitter and... and Social media, there's no question. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, the idea that those conversations aren't being modeled mm. and you have to go to someone like Rogan or mm-hmm. podcast like this podcast mm-hmm. yeah. for people to... So so it's... There's a need for it. There's an urgency for it. Mm-hmm. And the problems aren't going to fix themselves. Mm-hmm. If we don't solve them, they're not going to change themselves. Yeah. So... <laughs> Bless you. We can edit that out. Bless you. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, it's still ingrained in me. Yeah, it's funny. Interesting. Um, how yeah. That works, yeah. Um, I guess it's more of sentiments than anything, really. Yeah. No. And I do. I do. I'm not an unsympathetic to the 
to those mm-hmm. sentiments. Uh, and I think that's part of the idea that the the rules of engagement there, it's a well-meaning sentiment, even though I don't buy into the, the metaphysics of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Whereas what we see now are there are simply no well-meaning sentiments. You're, Fuck you, no, Nazi. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. No, you just take, it's the least charitable interpretation exactly. you can imagine. That is yeah. 100% correct. And that's what we talk about in the book mm-hmm. is that the default now is to just assume somebody has bad intentions. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. It's like that word grifter. Mm-hmm. It's a word that people use so that they don't have to, they can just, just disregard some someone's opinion or dis, disregard someone entirely. Like they don't have to do the intellectual work to see what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that term has gained such currency i i used to think it meant money like things for money it doesn't or at least not how it's used really i i've kind of heard it in in terms of like sit like the mad men 60s era like a grifter or whatever but it's used to deflate people's status of ideas i guess well that you're only doing this because you're grifting you're kind of like seeking status and seeking fame and popularity and seeking all these things it's it's the least charitable interpretation Mm -hmm. right it's not that that someone actually believes this stuff, it's that you have to attack their motivations. Mm-hmm. It's it's accusing people of posturing in a way that's just self-motivated, kind of. Yeah, it's purely self-motivated and assumes you have access to their motivations. But it's even worse. It's a way to... So I've never had a Patreon. I've never had a PayPal. I've never asked for a single penny. I never. I did the Grievance Studies thing for literally no money, mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. I did my app, Atheos, for no money. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never done... Never asked anybody for money. And when I was first constantly accused of being a grifter, it's, I get moron, grifter, and Nazi, I think, kind of in that order. Those are the three. Yeah, those are the three. Those are the, mo- the modes of, um, you know, you get outliers, like, mm. whatever. But it was in- interesting to me. I couldn't quite understand it. And then... It was like a piece of a larger cultural puzzle when you understood that, well, we don't want to take the time to understand these arguments, so let's use a moniker, one word that we can just attach mm-hmm. and just disregard. And plus there's such a farrago of, of uh, it's just a, a confusion of ideas. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh, what, do you, what do you think causes, is that just a sort of... Um, almost like defense mechanism like if i can label this person this i don't have to bother engaging with their views or is it something deeper than that different than that i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know either i'm i'm sure a component is intellectual laziness i'm sure a component is the idea of virtue like oh bad people believe those things he's Mm -hmm. a bad person the other thing is that you get a lot that you don't want to have a conversation with someone who holds a different beliefs because it's platforming them Mm, i've heard that which is so that's the other thing. So if you actually believe that your moral beliefs, for example, mm-hmm. are beliefs that should be hold, held by everybody else, you should have no problem engaging in those beliefs. In fact, the, I think part of it is if you don't believe at some level that that the beliefs that you hold, particularly the moral beliefs, are rationally derivable, then you have to come up with some kind of a infrastructure to prevent the conversation from occurring. Like, you have to come up with a name you call someone. You have to come up with defense mechanisms. And those are prophylactics mm-hmm. that prevent the beliefs from being attacked and keep them in place. Hmm. It's almost like you're maybe suggesting that, like, deep down, maybe at the like in their heart, heart of hearts, they kind of know that they don't really have that solid of a belief structure. Oh, for or, sure they don't. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Or else they just 
presents. Just talk about it. Well, yeah. yeah. So, you know, what is your evidence for the? F- Nobody should be be upset if you. Well, what is your? If I say to you, what is your evidence? If I say, you know, I'm I'm eight feet or you know, I don't know, what am I? Yeah, I'm twelve. Twenty four, twenty feet. Okay, something whatever. like that. Yeah. Yeah, and you say, well, no, you're not. You're mm-hmm. you know, eight, forty two feet. Yeah. Then you just measure the distance of the tree, and mm-hmm. I mean, oh, here, I'm forty two. So like that, yeah. those are you can adjudicate those just by looking at the evidence. Mm-hmm. But the idea there is that you had evidence, you presented it, I looked at it, the dispute was resolved. Yeah. Okay, so why isn't the same thing operative in the moral domain? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It's Well, because the my conjecture is that the people at some level believe that they don't have sufficient evidence to warrant those moral beliefs. Mm-hmm. If they did, they'd just present the evidence. Well, what's interesting about that example is we would both be on the same page that there is clearly an objective answer. Right. Like, we are... Let's say in actuality, it's 15 feet and, and, and 9 inches from the tree right. or whatever it is. Okay, I'll, let's just go with that. Fine. Okay. So the, the interesting thing is that we would both agree that that is... So our competing claims that it was 24 or 12 or whatever right. it was were falsifiable in some sense. That's correct. And I wonder if... Um, I mean, clearly there is, but I'm curious to what extent you think that the rejection of, of objectivity itself is, is fueling the fire of those... You know, we have to shut down these people, and right. Well, like, what do you? How how responsible do you think that impulse well, is? Well, you for see this? that in philosophy, in in the subjective turn, the turn away from objectivity, the mm-hmm. turn away from objectivity in in metaphysics, morality, or epistemology. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, it's the old thing that Habermas pointed out, and the performative contradiction in talking about Derrida and Leotard, the idea that there's something intrinsically contradictory about people using reason to criticize reason. And so, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Sorry, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. Uh, I don't know. Just bullshit. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, can I? Should I probably ask? Should I swear on your podcast? Oh yeah. Oh, now okay. you're fine. Okay. Yeah. The All podcast right. name is called That's BS. Okay. So, yeah. so I suppose yeah. bullshit is bullshit is involved. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we. I think we've said cunt on on the podcast. Oh, yet, you haven't. But now well, we have. The first time. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> so, I I wanted to ask you what. Um, Going back to the objectivity, um, first of all, I guess, so your yeah. conjecture is that the there are China, yeah. uh, objective truths in the moral uh, realm as well as in the well, just actual ones? I mean, I personally believe there are, but the, mm-hmm. the, people, the, the people on the far left and the far right, you know, it's the horseshoe idea again. Mm-hmm. Those people are making objective moral claims even though they're claiming from standpoint epistemology or from ideas that their subjective experience privilege or dominates any kind of objectively knowable world. So those claims themselves have to be taken as objective moral claims. So when they when they attempt to discharge those moral impulses in the world and institutions or what have you, they're not doing that solely from a place of subjectivity. They're doing it because they think that it's objectively good yeah. To do those things. Interesting. That seems like a snake that bites its own tail. In the Oboros. Oboros, yeah. 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 Because they're they're arriving at these conclusions from a place of subjectivity, but then turning them around and saying, well, this is true for everyone. That's correct. And that's an interesting paradox. And it's also very difficult to break through to someone in a conversation when they have hook, line, and sinker bought into the idea that 
that subjectivity is the dominating, that their subjectivity is kind of privileged over an objectively knowable world. Mm -hmm. And so to do that, the way that we write about in How to Have Impossible Conversations, the way to do that is that you, you need to elicit contradictions in someone's thoughts. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who are most far down this uh, road, contradictions don't bother them at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I see on Twitter constantly, and it's just always amazes me. I see it on the left and I see it on the right. People think there's just like this gotcha. Like, you know, Trump shows these pictures. Uh, Trump tweets, you know, oh, so many, you know, X thousands of people at my rallies. Mm -hmm. And then all these people tweet out pictures. Clearly there's not. And they tweet it out like it's a gotcha. Mm. But it's not a gotcha. Mm -hmm. It's not even remotely a gotcha. Because what does he give a shit about evidence for? No, not at all. Yeah. Right. He's not moved by evidence. So it's only a gotcha if the rules are, if we agree upon the rules. Mm -hmm. So we're measuring the feet, the, the tree. Mm -hmm. You're going in there with a yardstick or a tape measure or whatever. And I'm like, well, fuck that. You know, yeah. it's, it's going to be, I'm, I, I've either already come to the belief of, of, you know, it's 82 feet or whatever, mm -hmm. or I'm just not buying into that. Or is it, well, that's a, a colonialist, you know, feet are colonialists. Yeah. I don't, I just don't buy into that. Mm -hmm. I use, you know, some from indigenous people yeah. and I want to decolonize distances. Yeah. And you wouldn't accept a, uh, conversion rate between the well, two. Well, no, you, yeah. you wouldn't, no, no, that's, that's, um, Donald Davidson's idea. No, you wouldn't, you wouldn't accept those conversions rates. Uh, Conversion rates because those themselves are colonialist and tools. You can't use the uh, the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. So you couldn't even use those. Hmm. So then, how do you have? It's very easy, for example, for an atheist who holds to the correspondence theory of truth to have a conversation with a with an ap Christian apologist who holds the same things. But how do you have a conversation with somebody who either thinks that speech is violence or who fundamentally doesn't adhere to those rules mm -hmm. and these people and I say these people I don't mean that pejoratively although I kind of do mean it pejoratively uh, I'm not tagging it to people but I'm tagging it to this mimetic ideology that really has prosthetized people's consciousness has created a an ecosystem for poor ideas to thrive hmm. And that is exactly what we see happening. Yeah. They're metastasizing within that ecosystem. And then pe and the communities of people who hold these beliefs are getting together and lauding each other morally, virtue signaling, etc., mm -hmm. uh, for ascribing to beliefs that are totally untethered to reality. Hmm. Now, this is, uh, this is kind of a, a personal question. Um, Anything you want. But I'm, well, actually personal for me, not you. Oh, okay. Um, I'm interested in, because you said that... Um, you know, it, it is kind of impossible to have, or or very very difficult to have these conversations in a an environment where subjectivity is held above um, right. objectivity. Right. Now, so I um, can I pause you right there? Yeah, go ahead and just say the example of the tree again. Mm -hmm. So you think that your feelings of how far you are from the tree mm -hmm. trump small t? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sorry, I have to say that uh -huh. yeah. trump any way to measure that distance. Hmm. So how do you... So that, I think, is the... Okay, yeah. so go ahead. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, it's fine. So, well, so I... I at the University of Pittsburgh, I was a resident assistant. Um, and I was ingrained in, um, like, the residence life programs. And it was interesting because it was a systematized... Because, um, you know, I, I was, like, a, an, an uh, older, like, college student supervising the freshmen, right? Yeah. Um, and what was really interesting about it from my perspective was... 
ingrained in the system itself and ingrained in my job description itself was the valuing of subjectivity over objectivity. Um, in, in, you know, that's not mincing words much. Um, so how would that manifest? Well, that's what I was going to ask you about is, is how do you think, like, what's the end goal of that? Because from, from my perspective, it seems like oh, it's, it's GADSAD's Oppression Olympics, right? Yeah, like, yeah, we just yeah. find the most um, niche identity we can find amongst right. the residents right. and whatever they think is right. I don't, because I, I, it was interesting because I was in a, a sort of a position to not know how to weigh disagreements, right? Like, if... Yeah, you'd have to count up someone's oppression variables. Exactly. And it was really interesting because I was, <laughs> I was, <laughs> it's nice to not know anything about this like they do. Yeah. Um, but it, so, so it was interesting because I was an RA um, during the Trump election uh. and there was a small minority of, um, you know, Trump supporters who were on the floor, the, yeah. my, my floor, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and they hung a uh, like a you know Trump 2016 sign in their window or whatever, and the turnaround time for me to be instructed to tell them to take it down mm. was minutes. Not and I and there were other people who had other signs. I was, I was literally just going to ask you: Was it okay to have a Clinton sign? I so what's interesting is I didn't actually see any Clinton signs on my floor at least, um, but people had signs that had nothing to do with politics hung up in their windows. Um, you know, like how to pit signs or like just some, like a drawing or whatever that they made. And, and most of the time they were asked to take it down. Oh, okay. Well, all right. <laughs> well, that's fair. It's fair, but it was not mere minutes after it was hung right, up. Right. Um, and I, so it's kind of a long preamble to my question, but I was curious, like, how do you, what advice would you give to my previous self or people who are in that kind of a posi- <laughs> position? Position. <laughs> Nice theatrics. Yeah, yeah. hopefully the mic's cut most of that out. Um, So, so what advice um, would you give to someone who who was in my previous position, where you're operating? Because I want to keep my job, obviously, right? And but but who really fundamentally disagreed with the whole system that they were placed that they were placed in? I I would I would have said the truth. Are you asking other people to do this as Mm -hmm. well? And if they said yes, then so that's part of the problem is that we've created a culture in which asking people for evidence we're creating an academic culture and not just a broader culture mm-hmm. in which asking people for evidence is seen not as you want a, an answer to the question but you're the type of you're a bad person so that therefore you have to challenge somebody's beliefs so you you would have to approach that very carefully but that's the question that I would ask I would try to find someone with a Clinton mm-hmm. um sign and see if they were to take it down and then i would Mm -hmm. suggest that there's possible legal implications Mm. interesting yeah because it was a it was a strange and difficult position for me to be in yeah Yeah. um you know when you weren't a trump supporter right no no No, no, i I voted for clinton reluctantly but i I, am exactly the same yeah so but that's the the position that so many people find themselves in mm-hmm. uh, is they want to support basic what I consider to be American values and yeah. that anybody can have any sign they want you want to mm-hmm. support the communist candidate you want to have the green candidate hey, yeah. it's a free country or at least yeah. it used to be <laughs> yeah it used yeah. to be yeah no I, I very much take that um, stance on, on our podcast we've interviewed a 
um, a Marxist supporter yeah, yeah. Um, who runs a nonprofit in Pittsburgh, yeah. and obviously you, who are very different sides of spectrums, obviously. Yeah, and people get caught up into this, you know, I'm some kind of anti-Marxist guy. I never say anything about Marxism. Mm-hmm. I don't even care about Marxism. I, yeah. but, but it's really interesting, the whole move that we've made in our culture of not to just silence, but to glorify violence against people. Mm-hmm. It's grotesque. Yeah. And we're speaking in a town that that's pretty relevant in. It's very um, relevant. The yeah. whole Antifa and the failure of our Mayor Ted Wheeler and the myriad of problems of the city. I don't know, have, you, have you noticed since you've been in Portland the proliferation of homeless people? Yeah, I have actually. Okay, so there is a... I see it get worse and worse every year. I just got back from uh, San Francisco and I, Every year I've gone there, I simply could not believe the number of homeless people. And the city smelled like, not all of it, but most of it, or at least when the section I went, smelled like a combination of urine and marijuana and little feces. And I was struck not only that it got worse every year, but how that's not been part of the national conversation. And again, a big theme of my work has been that it's a failure to morally triage. So we're obsessed with you know gender and race, and we should be talking more about class and economic opportunities. We should be talking for sure. We should be talking about national solutions to the homeless problem. But it's it's this something pernicious has. I don't know if it's just intersectionality. I don't think it is. I think it's a suite of factors that have that operate in, into conjunction in conjunction with each other. To, to, it's almost like we've misprioritized what we should be talking about. Yeah. And meanwhile, there are homeless people in the street. I never see almost anybody talking about Jeez. talking about homelessness. You know, at yeah. PSU, I think last year or so, the big issue was should there, the police officers have guns on? Hmm. You think the mic's going to pick that up? I don't know, but can you repeat that? I can, I yeah. can kind of try to cancel out okay. noise in the, in the post. So should the police officers have guns on campus? And I'm not saying that is not. It's a local issue. It's fine if people want mm-hmm. to talk about that. But nothing about the Yazidis being tortured and murdered and raped and systematically sold into slavery. Nothing about... A, fr- a friend of mine said to me... Jeez. wonder how long that's going to go on. Uh, a friend of mine said to me, he wonders if that's because people don't have a global perspective on things so you know like Dawkins has a very global perspective on things and Mm -hmm. that changes the kind of issues that he engages and maybe people are very and again there's if you want to talk about local issues that's fantastic but I never really see anybody really ever at least at PSU around in the circles not even in the circles are in the broader circles talking about home addressing homeless issues Mm. and I'm not saying there's anything particularly special about that but I think it's a good example of an issue that both the left and the right can come together on yeah and it's I mean it's clearly an issue on anyone's um, standards should be. It should yeah, they're be. Americans, yeah. right? Yeah, you would think. So. I mean, they're human beings. Right. That. Yeah. So the many people on the, the the right, I would imagine, they would go back to this Trumpian citizen system. But I don't. I don't see that borne out by the other. I'm not a specialist in this by any stretch of the imagination. But mm-hmm. I would be flabbergasted if you showed me the majority of people are immigrants. I simply do not believe that's true, mm-hmm. from what I know and from from because of my wife's work, mm-hmm. I think a lot of those folks have mental health issues, uh, substance abuse issues, particularly from, from the, the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. We could go down that road if you want. That's a, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was uh, something struck me um, that you said, and I wonder, do you think, because um, you said it was maybe a suite of factors. That's correct. That 
causes us to to not morally triage correctly. Right. Do you think one of those factors is um, it seems like people are more likely to be vocal about problems that are smaller rather than larger? And I wonder if if the ease of the solution is actually kind of a tempting factor in what makes people vocal about it, right? Like if I can be really, really vocal about, um, you know, uh, every time you meet someone new, asking what their preferred pronoun is, the implementation of that is pretty easy. It's just an extra sentence at the beginning of every conversation. But world hunger, solving that, I have no idea how to do that. It kind of reminds me of a previous thing we talked about, a grifter. It's very easy Mm -hmm. to just not engage an idea by labeling it. I don't know. I don't think it's ease. I don't think it's ease. You know, Lindsay has this idea that one of the reasons we don't talk to each other is because we view or have conversations across the divide Mm -hmm. is because these are existential polarizations. So we look at that this is some kind of a existential crisis. And if these people were to gain ascendancy, what have you, the whole civilization would collapse. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I mean, what percentage of people, you know, whenever you see the he/she thing, mm-hmm. that's not a that's not a, a an identification of a self-identification. That's a political statement. Yes. So, what percentage of people are we talking about who actually have, you know, you could use the DSM five and those terms. People say they're not pejorative, but the DSM five is the best we have. It's the gold standard. I don't know if you want to call it gender dysphoria, or whatever. But mm-hmm. what percentage of people self-identify as trans? Seems to be a, a small number. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, so here's one way to think about the problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answers to these questions that I'm going to ask you, but I'm telling you it's a lens through which you can view the problem. Okay. How many homeless people are there in what, what, Pittsburgh? Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. Okay. I have no, I have absolutely no idea. Do you know how many homeless people there are? I would, I would be kind of throwing out a number, bullshitting. Okay. Um, how many people like 10, live 000, in Pittsburgh? Uh, three hundred and thirty thousand. Okay. How many trans people do you think are in Pittsburgh? Two, three thousand, maybe. In I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't yeah. know what the idea is either. But uh, one way, one a way to think about this is you could think about it numerically. You mm-hmm. could think about the suffering that these people go through. You could think you could think about it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any of those lenses offered. I just see rampant moral certainty. I mm-hmm. see attacks across the divide. I don't see anybody. Willing, it's not even that they're willing to make a compromise. I don't even see any any conversation occurring about it. Mm-hmm. How could we solve yeah. this problem? Well, let's think about it this way. Or I guess here's another thing. You know, a, a helpful technique is if, if you ask them if you had a wand. Mm-hmm. If I just give you this wand, it's a magic wand, mm-hmm. and and this wand will solve one of two. So I'm going to give you the yeah. question. I, here's here's a wand. I mm-hmm. hand you a wand. This wand is going to solve one of two problems in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. It's either going to solve the racist problem, so no one's going to be a racist anymore, even okay. subtly, or it's going to solve anthropogenic global warming. And you get to wave it, and you solve one problem. What do you solve? I would solve anthropogenic right. global warming. It's a yeah. total no-brainer. Yeah. But in spite of the fact that I've asked that to countless numbers of people now, um, I asked that to a buddy of mine at jujitsu with, and mm-hmm. I said anthropogenic global warming, and I didn't even say the second thing. He said that. He just, yeah, right. there's he just said, bar none. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Um, the fact that people have to think about that, whereas one is a species-threatening event, if you believe the people who work in this area and you trust their expertise, in which mm-hmm. I believe we have every reason to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what? 
so, so the fact is you have to conclude that someone's thinking is damaged or they're, they have radically misprioritized their moral mm-hmm. responsibilities or mistriage or however you want to want to frame it. Yeah. Because it seems so obvious. It is, yeah. What the solution to, to the wand thing is. So mm-hmm. then what, so that's just a heuristic. It's like once you have that, you can drill down into specifics of how to figure out, you know, then you can start talking about, you know, okay, so we know this is a priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should look for candidates who talk about this. Maybe we should look, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a mm-hmm. way to think about problems yeah. more productively than just calling everybody a Nazi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that seems like it would be sort of along consequentialist lines, almost like you're seeing what would do the best good for the most number of people. Yeah. Although the, the more you get into ethics, the more you realize <laughs> you can use deontology or you mm-hmm. can use a- any, any ethical theory to validate mm-hmm. virtually any position so That's you could fair, say it's yeah. a deontological thing as well because you have a duty to mm-hmm. not kill the whole species mm-hmm. preserving yeah. the most rights of the most yeah. people yeah, yeah that's interesting and and you know then it's like i was just rereading a hundred uh, the gabriel garcia marquez that um and it's just really interesting when you situate those things i think people are constantly trying to find meaning in their lives about things mm-hmm. And one thing I've been thinking about a lot is the relationship between meaning, meaning and loneliness. Hmm. And I've been reading some Johan Hari, which I love. Yeah, he's uh, great. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think we don't spend enough time talking about the effects of loneliness and the effects of community. There's a lot of good stuff in religious psychology about how beliefs are reinforced through these communities. Mm-hmm. But the analog to that is secular there are secular communities as well, like in the academy, and often people will latch onto a belief because they really are lonely, and there's a built-in community there for those folks, and they can discharge their rage or their anger or, or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. But when you look at that, it's easier to understand, I think, certain ecosystems and networks of belief, mm-hmm. and once you can figure that out, you don't even have to delve too much into it. You, it makes having a conversation with someone much easier. Mm-hmm. So, w- when you're talking across these groups, mm-hmm. um, where you know you may not put yourself in any group in particular, but other people see you as part of a group. Yeah. Um, I get that all the time with yeah. the IDW. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you? So, so what? What kind of um, like tactics or strategies would you recommend for? I guess bringing down the focus on those group identities and just having a conversation as individuals? That's a really good question. I think that the first thing is you have to figure out what the claim is. Mm. And often, and then do what we talked about before, you just can't assume that someone has negative motivation. Almost nobody has negative motivations. Unless you're online, then that number's... But even then, that number is artificially inflated. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have to figure out what they believe... And then you have to understand it. And that's Rappaport's rule. You have to repeat it back to them. Mm-hmm. And f- the technique from Hoss's negotiation is you have to, the ideal is that you wanted to get them to say that's right. Okay. So when they say that's right, you know that mm-hmm. that's the gold standard. Sure. Yeah. So then you use Rappaport's rules, which we talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. And then once you do that, then you can figure out the best road to proceed but people either don't have the conversations or they jump right into understanding or they think they're listening or they actually are listening but they don't repeat back so the person says yes so they don't act they're not actually understanding they're thinking that the position is a caricature of the position that the person actually holds as opposed to their position okay interesting yeah. so 
that kind of brings me, I want to circle back for a second and ask you um, why the the methodology by which you come to your beliefs or your epistemology yeah. is more important than the beliefs you currently happen to hold. Because um, oh, I think that's counterintuitive question. to a lot of people. Yeah, and that's the mistake that people make. They engage conclusions and they don't engage epistemologies. Mm -hmm. And so I've written and spoken about this extensively. The problem with engaging a conclusion is that, one, people will have well-rehearsed responses to what sure. they're concluding. So they have mm -hmm. defenses for those. Two, the epistemologies that people hold, especially today since they're not challenging questions and we don't have conversations, they're notoriously brittle. Yeah. So it's to reason. So this is a fairly easy epistemological question. How far are we to the tree? 19 feet. How do you know that? Mm -hmm. Well, I guessed. Well, I'm a civil engineer and I specialize in guessing distance or, you know, what I'm a, those dudes yeah. who work in the circus and guess people's Surveyors weight. and, yeah, I don't know if they yeah. have those people. And when I was a kid, they <laughs> used to go to the thing and they used to, the guys used to guess their weight and my friends used to, you know, fill their coat pockets with uh, bricks and stuff. But, <laughs> but the, the, the idea, the idea is that, that there are ways to, uh, there are ways to think about that. I just kind of lost my thought. Oh, sorry. No, 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 it's my fault. Uh, the, well, the question was, why are the, the methodologies by which you come oh, yeah. to your business so more yeah, important? Just yeah. ask, well, how, how do you know what the distance is? And they said, okay, and then, you, then the next question, you go, okay, so how could we agree to solve this question? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what method could we use that we can solve this question? Mm -hmm. But that's the same question that you'd use in the moral realm. There's no difference. Yeah. They're identical. Yeah. It's just moral epistemology. Hmm. How do you know what you believe morally? And what you do is you focus on how someone knows what they believe morally. And if you ask the right targeted questions in only like, I don't know, 30 seconds, you'll figure out people have no idea what they believe morally. Yeah, yeah. That's an experience I've had many times in my intro to like ethics class, for instance. Right. I, I remember the, um, the professor asked, um, you know, how, how many of you think that... Um, you know, we should just respect the moral opinions of, of everyone and not really challenge them because it would be, you know, unfair or, or obtuse to do that. Right. And, you know, three-fourths of the class raises their hands. Right. And then, then he asks, um, how many of you uh, believe that rape is immoral? Right. And, and, you know, all the class raises yeah. their hand. And he says, um, how many of you believe that that is true irrespective of who you are? Like, mm. that, that rape is always immoral. And all the class raises right. their hands. He's like, do you see a contradiction there? Yeah, yeah. And I, and like, Light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, yeah, and yeah. they'll come off. And that was all through asking questions. Um, yeah, the tr the problem there is that rape is something that's intrinsically bad. It's like mm -hmm. it's called a thick word, so it has it is bad contained within it. Okay, you know, like um, it's eating too much of something bad. Well, yeah, too too much, you know, too many vegetables bad. Well, too much is bad. So, but if that works to get to get the light bulb on, then then mm -hmm. that works. The problem is that you'll have a standout in that group if you teach enough people. Sure. Who, who will find that problem and then maybe undermine the intellectual work for the rest of the people. But okay. um, I think, you know, when you told me, tell me those problems, I fear for the country. I fear about our economic competitiveness. I fear, I fear for just reading something from Greg Lukanoff, the guy who was the first author in the Coddling of the American Mind, about mm -hmm. the number of um, uh, site, people who self... No, no, it's... People who I can't I can't remember exactly the phraseology, and I think the phrase is important. But the the number of mental health crises have gone up, and 
we don't really know causally why, but we think it's because of the spaces and the environments that we've created where we've made a virtue of being offended, a virtue of being a victim, a virtue of, you know, we've tied the moral, there's moral currency to those things. Hmm. And that's the key to this whole thing is that people often, more often than not, they don't hold a belief for epistemological reasons they hold it for moral reasons. Now, you may hold the belief like this, the tree thing, you, that's clearly an epistemological thing, mm -hmm. but once you start talking across a genuine divide, immigration, abortion, gun control, euthanasia, making pot legal or whatever, mm -hmm. you're almost always talking about a moral issue, and that's why providing data for those things don't work. Hmm. That's why it's not effective... Um, at inducing doubt in someone's cognitive architecture. Yeah. Uh, that was a question I wanted to ask you as well, um, because I think there are, I'm not familiar with them, but I, I think I've heard that there are, you know, a lot of psychological studies that show that when you produce facts that yeah. are um, counter to someone's worldview or yeah. the belief they have. Always, it, they hunker down, mm -hmm. the backfire effect. Yeah. Rifler. yeah, so that you need to be really careful when you do that. And in the book we say, so this is the one of the most counterintuitive things mm -hmm. you just and this is the thing that no matter how many people listen to this or they won't listen to me so <laughs> if people are going to do what they're going to do but mm -hmm. you don't want to ever introduce facts or almost ever the only time is when someone explicitly asks you for facts mm. but any introduction of facts causes people to hunker down and it makes it more difficult to instill doubt in their belief system and the evidence for this is overwhelming so it's not me saying that there's a whole lot in fact yeah. the citations in the book um, cool. yeah. a whole lot of literature about it the so what's interesting is that I believe that those studies are true, yeah. but I, I almost, I'm kind of reluctant to, um, leave facts out of conversations. And yeah. I wonder like, how do you, how do you balance those two? Oh, that's easy. Goals? You ask, uh, well, I have to train myself to not say this because mm -hmm. it's a big word, but in philosophy, you call it defeasibility, but in the book, we call it disconfirmation. Okay. You just front load with a disconfirmation question. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So whatever you believe the tree is. 10 feet or you know you know Mexicans are killing everybody whatever insane belief you happen to have sure you know uh, what evidence could I provide you with that would cause you to change mm -hmm. your mind so that way you're not providing the evidence you're asking them for what the evidence should be and then you can figure out if you can provide it Interesting. okay so then they say well this evidence and then that there listen this is the thing there's only so many things people can say to you there's just a limit of things. They can say there is no evidence. This is chapter five in the book. Mm -hmm. They can tell you what the evidence is, or they can produce something that's it's a wildly uh, disconfirmable statement. Like, you know, the famous one is the bones of Christ. Mm. What would it take to prove that Jesus wasn't resurrected? Well, the bones of Christ, then he couldn't have ascended to heaven. Okay, so that's wildly improbable. We talk about exactly what to do in that and how to have impossible conversations. So then let's say that they provide you their evidence. Then you have to ask, okay, so let's drill down now. Okay, so what source would you accept? What, mm. Who would have to say that? How would we know it wasn't fake news? So what you're doing is you're not telling them anything. You're simply asking them what, it, what would be sufficient for them to change their minds. Hmm. And. And then you do you can you can go off in any one of a number of directions. Sure, you can go back to Rappaport's rules. You can do, there's tons of stuff you can do, mm -hmm. but you have to figure out what it is that they believe before you do anything. Because mm -hmm. if you don't, it's not a conversation. It's you delivering a message, and they're delivering a message, mm -hmm. and it's like two ships passing in the night. Yeah, or you're just you know, batting a volleyball back and forth. Yeah. And you don't want to let it touch your side. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So what um. What's interesting is that, so when I, I have tried that tactic a lot of the time and I'll usually, mm -hmm, yeah. and I'll usually get w one of two responses, either 
well, one of three, I suppose. There is nothing, or okay. um, they will say something that, like you said, is is something we could actually like look up and get our hands on. Okay. It's a fact that exists. The third is the one I have the most difficulty with. They will say something that um, either won't come true in our lifetimes, or so it's wildly disconfirmable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's go through those. Okay. So the most important thing to remember is when you're using the techniques in the book. There's nothing else anybody can say to you. That's it. Hmm. They're going to tell you what it is. They're going to tell you there is nothing, mm-hmm. or they're going to say something that's totally bizarre. Mm-hmm. There is no other option. Or, I mean, I guess they they could say, "I don't know," which then again f- falls into. You just have to drill down on that a little yeah. more. You have to ask more questions, and then it will fall into one of those categories. Okay. So it's like a placeholder thing. Okay. So if they say something that's wildly implausible, then you have to ask yourself, okay. Do I want to stay in this conversation? Mm-hmm. And then you have to ask yourself. So, so once you figure out your goals, and I think that's chapter one of the book, then mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself. You can ask questions like, "Okay, what is the method that you arrived at?" Which is epistemology. Sure. Do you have any other? Do, do you use that method of reasoning for anything else? That's a very good question because you'll find that people will say no, or they'll say yeah. Again, there are only so many things people can say, yeah. that, right? So if they say yes. What is the thing that you use that method of reasoning for? And then you ask questions about that. If they say no, what makes it, what is, what, why is this domain of thought special? Why is hmm. this conclusion special? Why does this method of reasoning only apply to this, but it doesn't apply when you walk into a bank and ask for change? Hmm. Why, why doesn't it apply when, you, when, you, when you're trying to figure out how far you are from the tree? Yeah, interesting. And that's kind of introducing to go back to the previous thing you said, a contradiction almost in there. Um, epistemologies. Yeah, and yeah. so basically, I didn't say anything. I didn't say that's a contradiction. I didn't say anything. I simply asked the question: Why is it that the method of you, reasoning you need? Some people call it special pleading. It's kind of something like that. But mm-hmm. why is it the me- method of reasoning that you use in this context? But you don't is is valid or appropriate or good or just or leads you to the truth or whatever ha- you ha- whatever have you. But you don't mm-hmm. use it for anything else. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, and then they, they can say something crazy at that point. Well, it makes me feel good. Okay, so yeah. do you use that method when when you're trying to invest money? <laughs> right, clearly not. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so what is it about the method of reasoning to this particular subject? And again, the reason that you will find is that it has, if it doesn't have um, a moral salience, then it will have identity. Something dealing identity level salience. Something mm. about their identity, mm. the trans thing, the pronoun thing, the gender thing, the racial thing. And all those are then attuned and calibrated by the culture in which we live, which at this point is obsessed with these things. But yeah. uh, it has some. There's some kind of identity marker that they're defending or using or don't want to examine or not honest about or something. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, a slight difference on that question. How yeah. do you? Um, how do you deal with people who um, have different goals for the conversation that you have? Because um, I know one thing, like kind of as a byproduct of doing this podcast, mm-hmm. I will talk with people who seem to have different goals for the conversation as I do. Um, like th- the reason why I like this long form, no time limit thing is that you can just explore stuff. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not that like five minute CNN, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to beat this guy on this yeah, issue, yeah. right? It's like, I actually don't know the interest. It's a problem with the issue. debates, by the way, the yeah. presidential debates, Definitely. you just put your finger right on mm-hmm. it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I go into a lot of these conversations wanting to explore um, and learn more. And coming up with a definitive standpoint on a question is kind of a secondary concern. Mm. And 
it seems like for a lot of people, a lot of the time, the goal is not that. It's very antithetical to that. What's it's the goal? To win the conversation. Um, but that's fine, too. I mean, okay. there's disparate goals aren't a problem at all hmm. so if your goal is to learn peter Lindbergh has something on the intellectual explorers podcast that hmm. i did he has a nice little th- thing that he says uh, at the beginning of that podcast and i actually repeated it to him to he okay. says for a mindset but if your goal is to win mm-hmm. and my goal or someone else's goal is to win and then your goal is to listen or learn or what have you mm-hmm. you can each Accomplish, or you could certainly accomplish your own goals just by listening more and trying to figure out what their epistemology is, and then you can use that later on. But hmm. you you'll find that even if that's your goal, you can still. So if you if their goal is to win, then you have to ask yourself, okay, should I modify my goal? Or maybe at that point, your goal should just be to induce induce doubt. Doubt. Hmm. It's it's very it's astonishingly easy to induce doubt in someone's belief system, hmm. like little micro wedges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess, again, with the the topic of like podcasting, I'm curious what role you think the medium plays. Um, so, for instance, like what role does anonymity play online in degrading our conversations? I think it's a t- t- hor- horrible thing. You know, I was thinking about. I'm still thinking about the winning though. Like, sure. Even if your goal is to win, like I got nothing to prove to you now. So, like, you could try to. I don't know undermine me or sure. but what difference it doesn't really make a difference to me. I mean hmm. so I guess you have to ask yourself why do you really why does it matter because it doesn't okay. seem to me like it matters at all interesting yeah I guess because hmm. you know someone's going at you for whatever reason they sure. just more often than not look like an ass to anybody who has no bone no axe to grind on either side yeah, of it. it's just watching yeah interesting so you almost it's it's not even just pay no mind almost yeah, I mean, there's no no point to it. But I do think that we live again. I I don't want to put all these problems on our particular culture, but I do think our culture is very sick right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that there's an overestimated. Um, I think I think we we're we're it's a manifestation of caring about the wrong things. Hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so. Do you do you think that? Um, well, I ask the anonymity question um, because yeah, I. It's a huge problem. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I have a friend of mine who uses his full name on Facebook mm. and a um, kind of a, a an alteration on of that name on Twitter mm. and then just a username on Reddit. Mm. And it's funny because I can see a linear relationship between his anonymity and his civility or conduct. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know, like, what, do you think that if, you know, Jack of Twitter would come out and say, you know, from now on, we are going to have to have like some two stage identi- identity verification mm. and your full name is going to be on, on your Twitter handle. Do you think that that would be a good idea? Is that something you'd advocate? I don't know. I don't know enough about... I haven't looked at that literature. I'm sure someone's written about it. The mm-hmm. Part of the other problem is that that stuff is so new. I don't think we've... We don't know how to navigate that stuff yet. But, mm-hmm. excuse me, the other thing that you can do is you don't have to pay attention to any of that stuff. True. You can just set your tw- Twitter to um, not see... Like, I think I have mindset. I don't look at new users, and I don't okay. look at users who aren't... Um, who don't have their email or phone number set up. So that okay. alone will block. Yeah. And then, you know, people have, I think Dave Rubin was telling me that one guy was talk, talking, he's like, have, people have so many sock puppets and they have just fake accounts mm-hmm. and they just launch attacks on you from these. So you don't really know 
you don't really know. It's, it's you know, it's like the famous debate when Trump said it's well, we don't really know. It could be some four hundred pound guy in his basement. Well, he's actually right about <laughs> yeah, that. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's right not in terms of the Russians, but you don't really know where these things. You don't know if someone has multiple accounts, but the civility issue is a is a big problem. Hmm. But the, the answer to that is not to try to regulate someone else's behavior. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Mm-hmm. It's to regulate your own behavior. Hmm. You have to start taking responsibility for those things yourself. You can't rely on somebody else to not say mean things to you. Oh, you have to use the right pronoun or, you know, tell me to fuck off. Or, well, you know, you have to deal with it. It's just fine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but now we're creating, we have this culture in which it's always the the onus is on the other person. But the mm. problem with that is that that, is, that must lead to disaster. Hmm. Why is si- that? Well, because you simply cannot count on other people not being assholes. <laughs> it just won't work because mm-hmm. there are assholes and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. It's, it's a self-improving. Um, even than, if even yeah. if someone used their real name, they're still going to. There are still people Someone's who use their real name yeah. who are assholes. Yeah. So you, you have to place the burden on yourself to deal with it as opposed to other people. Hmm. Interesting. What um, on that note, what do you think are the main things that people have to give up in order to have. Um, more productive conversations? What do they kind of have to leave at the, the coat check? Delivering a message. I just want to make sure my wife... Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. No, no worries. Um, an email from Shermer. Uh, I think they they have to give up uh, the idea that they would deliver a message. They also have to give up the idea that, oh, if he just had this or she just had this one piece of information or two pieces of information... They wouldn't believe that. Hmm. You have to give that up. It's just not true. Yeah. In in moral or identity things. You know, it could be true in purely epistemological things like distances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it, emotions really don't play much of a role. Yeah, yeah. or emotions, feelings. Uh, you know, oh, my grandmother was from Mexico. Or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I was interested in your response to this question. If if I could ask it. Okay. Um, so it seems like the the um, kind of precondition of a lot of this book and your previous one is that, like we, we talked about before, there are objective facts to be right or wrong about. Yeah. Um, and there seems to be this, um, I know with the kind of emergence of Jordan Peterson, there's a swing into not relativism per se, which is kind of its own thing, mm. but more of like a Prag- evolution. Truth pragmatism? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I wondered... Um, what you thought of that, first of all, and, and secondly, how to um, are, are, do you have any advice for for talking with someone who would believe in that sort of a um, a worldview? Yeah, that's a far that's it's both more difficult and easier. Hmm. Uh, I guess the advice would be the same. Um, you just figure out figure out the claim. Hmm. So listen, understand, and instill doubt. Or listen, understand, and then try to find truth. So the book is divided okay. up into two things, either interventions and so much cognitions or truth-seeking. We wanted to put a fuel gauge there to say what percentage of each, the 36 okay. techniques and strategies, but the the uh, publisher didn't like the idea of the fuel gauge, so we left it okay. out. But uh, it's the same thing. It doesn't really matter what someone's worldview is. It just it, it just changes the questions you would ask someone. Yeah, that's I guess the, in the really extreme it does. You know, if someone is like, you're a white dude. Are you? I hate dudes with beards. You know, fuck you, mm. bearded fuck. Like that. Okay, so then you're talking about another level. That's really not a conversation. You're sure. just talking to some lunatic. 
Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. How, because I know that you have both obviously had a lot of one on one conversations like this, and you've also had a lot of conversations where you're addressing a group of people. Uh, <laughs> how does. Many. Yeah. Yeah. What are there, are there, um, different do you go into different modes when you're talking with an individual versus no. a group no no you do have to deal with different things when you're talking with groups like you know heckling or sure. it's always in the back of my mind someone's going to shoot me or just do something crazy or, you know and i have a lot of those threats that are i take seriously but yeah. no the, it's just the same yeah there's nothing spe- you don't have to compromise your in- authenticity or integrity because hmm. you speak to more people i will say that if you want to conduct a belief intervention uh, doing it with two on one is significantly more difficult uh that's two or one three or one but it's not as bad at all if you do it with a room of people the best is one-on-one yeah and the best is not on social media because mm-hmm. it it takes away that sort of performance art to it um, yeah not only the performance art but they think that they have to they want the other person's approbation so they want their moral approbation their moral approval and okay. and they they they'll become much more defensive if their buddy is listening to them huh so if you that's yeah. why mormons for example go in twos right so it's when you isolate someone it's much easier to instill doubt yeah yeah how how much do you think um uh, that they the, the new sort of intersectionality um, SJW cabal mirrors a religion. Oh, we've written about this extensively. We've mm-hmm. talked about this extensively. We've given talks. If you go to YouTube and see it, and James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose have a mm-hmm. new book from Pitchstone Press coming out about that. Um, so yeah, we've I've talked to that to death. Yeah, it's def. I talked about it on Ruben. It's 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 definitely big time. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Oh, um, well, good. Yeah, but uh, I want to thank you uh, cool. very much for doing this. Oh, my, and, um, my pleasure. Is there anything else you want to ask me? Or I think we really covered it. Uh, um, I think people should definitely um, get this book, and if you could, please tell them where they can find it. All right, you can find it on Amazon, How to Have Impossible Conversations. I don't know if it's Mm-hmm. <laughs> how to have impossible conversations the publisher put in a very practical guide mm-hmm. you can find me on twitter at peter bogosian uh i have websites i don't even know what they are <laughs> but people can find them but they, they're out there and put My links in the description yeah online i don't even know anyway mm-hmm. i don't really yeah, yeah i'm not too yeah. good at self-promotion but one last question what is it like to write a book with someone i'm curious about that um i guess the question is entirely dependent upon who you write it with. Like mm-hmm. I don't as much. I love Helen Pluckrose. I love that woman. Mm-hmm. There's no possible way I could ever write anything with her, unless mm-hmm. Jim is on it as well. Okay. Uh, we we just have different. Like my writing is punchy, mm-hmm. one word sentences or what have you. Her writing goes on. It's just different styles. Okay. But Jim and I have published in Scientific American, Time, The Philosopher's Magazine. In fact, we just wrote another thing for them. But we've just published in so many venues. We've published in peer review. We've published fake papers. Mm-hmm. We've so we have a system. This is the system that I would recommend to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, the, John Cullicott was a former editor of the, of the Washington Post, told me one of the greatest pieces of advice to, to improve my writing. Hmm. And this years ago, he said, the main thing that prevents people from becoming a good writer is that they look at their writing like their baby. Hmm. And I would, you know, if I get something from Jim, I'd like, dude, this sucks. Yeah. And he'll, t- there's no, nothing personal about it. Yeah. We each have the goal of wanting to produce the best quality thing. And the moment that you let go of any of that ego, your writing gets better. But what we'll do is we'll take a document in Word and 
I'll write it or he'll write it and we'll just continue to bounce it around with track changes and then at the end like I mean and when I say so there's my other advice piece of unsolicited advice for people going to school and submitting papers the difference between a B paper and an A minus paper or a B plus paper and A minus paper is the number of people who you show that paper to who edit it so for example have a group of three your friends take the that paper I say and you don't have to use word chat you can use Google Doc the, the platform is sure. doesn't matter you say okay just write this look at their uh, you know track changes or whatever the Google analog is and yeah. get it back to me but then they stop an A minus paper would be they send it out either to the three people again or to a different three people mm -hmm. if you want to get an A paper multiple iterations of that same process six okay. seven eight times hmm. and if you want to publish something then yeah. after you do that get a professional editor yeah so Russell Blackford was our in-house editor he has two PhDs in English and philosophy for this okay and he's an unbelievably meticulous human being like mm -hmm. he is meticulous yeah just really zeroes you in just yeah so my former <laughs> editor this is an interesting story real quick yeah go ahead my former editor this is a great I don't think I've ever told this story before oh nice uh, so you can you know when you make those clips of the mm -hmm. podcast you can sure. make this clip yep Peter Bogosian tells stories never said before yeah. my <laughs> former editor was a very good friend of mine you ever read The Onion yeah so he's the co-founder of The Onion Chris Johnson okay and I wrote this chapter, did the whole things, gave it to other people, they gave it back, I gave it to him, and he called me on the phone. And he said, what is this? And I said, what is what? And there was a red line under one of the words, meaning it was spelled wrong. Okay. And he said, if you ever, ever do this to me again, if you ever give something like this to me again I will still be your friend but our professional relationship is over and he hung the phone up on me and that was one of the best things that anyone ever did to improve my writing wow it's a great story it's true it's in a, it made yeah. me much more conscious meticulous um, it was a great it was a great lesson don't be sloppy in your writing there's simply wow. no excuse to have a red line under anything you write there's just no excuse I mean, it's literally telling you there is a mistake here. Yeah. And it's not a stylistic <laughs> mistake. It's just you, you're, right. you didn't right. really check this. Yeah. Right. Wow. Hmm. That makes me ashamed of probably the dozen papers I've submitted with a... Well, you know, yeah. that's the thing is that we have this feel-good culture now where, it's, oh, your writing is great, you know, and professors don't want to criticize students because they get lower end of course surveys or what have you, or they get complaints and it's a theft of their time. So again, yeah. we've created a culture in which we're not allowing people to be their best intellectual selves. Hmm. And I'm telling you, this is going to come back to haunt us. There's Definitely. simply no question about it. Yeah. Hmm. Because it's, it's, I guess, would you say it's like, it's removing any, I guess it just, it removes any reason to get better. If you're just going to get their Yeah, and if we yeah. lived in one world where everybody was one country, we wouldn't have too much to worry about. But when you're competing in a global marketplace, you know, as Tom Friedman said, a B student in Boise or a B student in Beijing, like the flat earth thing, yeah. you're competing against people and you're competing against countries and you're dealing with a myriad of problems and this whole feel-good self-esteem culture is, is just, it, it will do us in. And lying to people about the stuff that they should be, you know. Yeah. If I hear another fucking person tell me about recycling, 
at Portland State, I'm going to have a heart attack. Like, you know, we're just not being honest about people with the coming ecological crises. Mm. And, you know, telling people to recycle is just, it's a feel-good platitude that's just not being, we'll add that to the list of things, homelessness, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Not just a drop in the bucket, you mean? It's just not enough? It's it's not even not enough. It's not even clear that it's anything. Oh, I mean, yeah. given the the in, incredibly the rise of CO two. I mean, you know, I don't want to. Sure. I don't want to. But it's leave all everybody on a bad note. But, yeah. Uh, we need to start being honest with people about the problems that we face. Because yeah. if you're not honest, I will tell you in no uncertain terms, the problem will solve itself. <laughs> so we're either going to grip it and try to do something about it and be an adult, or the pro- if you think you're triggered by talking about family planning or yeah. what you know you're triggered about cutting back on your consumption you wait to see when there is uh when, when we have to talk not about mitigation but adaptation when we have to start talking about when when the crisis comes to you and you're hungry and you have enough food and the, you you wait so yeah. you're not doing anybody any favors by not talking about issues especially shared issues that we need to solve mm-hmm. and you're not doing anybody any any favors when you start talking about other things like racism which is important there's no question about it but to the expense of literally everything else that the society should address yeah hmm. so thanks for interesting your time. yeah thank you very much well i hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it and if you want to support my work and what i'm doing you can do so by supporting me on patreon you can go Um, to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers and donate um, on a monthly basis and receive rewards for your donation. Um, Again, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And uh, the links to everything will be in the description below. If you can't monetarily support me, you can support me in other ways by liking this video, uh, commenting on it below, reviewing the show on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend or with your Twitter followers. Um, you can also email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And if you want, um, you can check out my other show called That's BS. Um, it's a more discussion-based show with me and friends. I mentioned it at the top of this episode. So um, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.